people of Israel again do what was evil in the sight of the Lord and serve the Baalists and Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Amorites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Amorites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Israel, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God, and we serve the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Manorites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only let us deliver us this day. So they put away the, the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Continuing on chapter 11. Now Jephthah the Gileadite is a mighty warrior. He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tom. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Amorites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah to the land of Tobit. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and ruler over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord of Israel. Then Jephthah sent messages to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, 
from the Anahi to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore the it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messages to the king of the Ammonites, and he said to them, Thus says, says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab camps on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messages to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Hespon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to your country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all these people together and encamped with Jehovah's and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all these people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Adon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, is in possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aroah and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, three hundred years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Israel. But the king of the, of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent to him. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be over this. And I will offer it up to the Ammonites. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroah to the neighborhood of Nineveh, twenty cities, and as far as Abel came with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, 
my Father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites, and the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my journey. I am my companions. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her community on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadah, four days in the year. Chapter 12. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over, over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I told you, you did not save me from my hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life from my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because he said, you are fugitives of Israel, and Gileadites in the midst of Israel and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Israelites. And when they and when any fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Shibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Israelites fell. Jephthah, the judge of Israel, judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in his city of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for reading so well for us, and uh, well done for uh, concentrating uh, through such a long passage. Um, let me encourage you to uh, keep that part of uh, the Old Testament open in front of you. Um, and uh, uh, let me encourage you to keep on uh, working hard with me to understand uh, what God has to say to us here. Uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then uh, we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly uh, Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word to us. And uh, we pray, Father, that as we uh, come before this passage that was just read uh, for us, uh, that you would give us concentration, uh, give us attentiveness to the things that you say, and we pray that uh, by your Spirit uh, we might not simply understand these things in our heads, but that you would deepen our faith and our trust in you and in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, are you any good at bargaining? Uh, when I was in Korea during my long service leave, uh, I tried my hand at bargaining. Uh, I went to one of those night markets and uh, I picked out a, a shirt that I, that I liked. Um, I asked the man how much uh, the shirt was and he said it was uh, $20 in, in Australian currency. 
then I put my bargaining skills to work. I, I said to him, look, if I buy two shirts, how much can you get give it to me for? Expecting him to give me a big discount. Uh, he looked slightly annoyed. Um, and he said to me, I'll give it to you for $40. And because he looked annoyed and because he was quite scary looking, I just handed over the cash and got severely ripped off in the process. Now, I'm hopeless when it comes to bargaining. Uh, I wish I was better at it. I know some of you are very good at it. Hands up if you're a good bargainer. Yeah, quite a few of us. Um, but bargaining is all about getting the best outcome for yourself. It's about giving and taking, but doing it in a way that is most advantageous to yourself. Now, at its heart, it's a self-interested activity. And in some ways, there's nothing wrong with bargaining. You can't actually live in this world without bargaining to some extent, can we? Uh, you know, we bargain in our workplaces, when we negotiate deals with our clients, we do it in our marriages as we negotiate who's going to pick up the kids. Uh, we do it when we buy things because we want the best deal that's available to us, you see. But what about bargaining with God? Is it ever right to bargain with God? And if we find ourselves bargaining with God, then what does that tell us about what we think about God? How we view God. Now, I'm asking these questions because in today's passage, we're looking at uh, uh, the judge called Jephthah, as we've seen. And as we will see, Jephthah is very good at the art of bargaining. So one commentator calls him the negotiator. Because all throughout passage, we see him negotiating, bargaining, haggling, not only with other people but also with, with God himself. Can it ever be right to bargain with God? Is it ever a right way to relate to God? And friends, if we dive into the passage itself, you'll see there that it begins with an all-too-familiar story. Now, you've probably seen this again and again, but uh, after God saves the people of Israel, they again slide into idolatry. Have a look at uh, verse 6 with me. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And yet, did you notice that this account of Israel sliding into idol- uh, idolatry again is a little bit different to the previous accounts? Because you'll notice there that the gods of the other nations that they're worshipping are specifically mentioned. And so you can see that again, that they worship the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. In other words, Israel is at a point where they are willing to worship any and every god apart from Yahweh, who is the true and living God. How does God respond? Well, you can see there in verse 7 that he is angry and he sells them into the hands of their enemies, the Philistines and the Ammonites, who crush them and oppress them and subject them to slavery. Uh, you know, when I sell a piece of furniture um, on 
Facebook marketplace, which I've been doing for a bit, I'm handing that piece of furniture over to another person to do with it as they please, aren't I? I mean, I might have cared for that piece of furniture for many years, but as soon as I sell that piece of furniture to another person, well, that person may not care for it. Now, that's what's happening here, isn't it? God sells the people of Israel into the hands of their enemies to do with them as they please. It's a bit like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, where God's judgment is all about handing people over, selling people over to experience the consequences of their foolish identity. You see, this is what I always think is you worship created things, thinking that they will bring in freedom, but they will bring slavery. You worship money, thinking they will bring you freedom, but you find yourself ruled by a harsh master. You worship your family, thinking that they will bring you joy, but you find that they bring you much anxiety. You worship your achievements, thinking it will bring you satisfaction, you will only bring you But here's the thing, friends. Did you notice that even after the people of Israel, in their desperate state, confessed their sins to God, God says to them that He has had enough? Have a look with me at chapter 10, verse 11. Take your Bible, take a look at the chapter 10, verse 11. It says, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maronites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. There are words you never want to hear from God. It must be those words, right? I will save you no more. Even more disturbing is that even after the people of Israel confess their sins again in verse 15, and even repent by putting away their idols, there is no word from God that He will relent. The only glimmer of hope that we're given is at the end of verse 16 where it says that God became impatient with the misery of his people. That is, Israel's hope lies not in their ability to genuinely repent, but Israel's only hope is in the character of God who cannot look upon the suffering of his people. But there is a great warning here, isn't there, about presuming upon the grace of God in our lives. If you and I are in the habit of treating God, you know, as a bit of a bending machine to just go to you when you need to get help or when you need something from Him, even though we have no intention of treating Him as our King. We do not think that God 
Amorites, who were different from the Ammonites. And uh, so we took this land not from you guys, but from the Amorites instead. And he also says, uh, it's actually God who gave us this land, and so uh, it's legitimately ours. And he also says, um, you know, look at some of the other neighbors, uh, you know, surrounding Israel. Uh, they're not disputing this land, so why should we dispute this land? But in the end, he promises things, and that is to war. However, notice that as Jephthah heads to the end of his argument, what he does is he simply gives the matter over to God. Uh, in verse 27, have a look at me at verse 27, he says to the king of the Ammonites, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. This is the high point of Jephthah. It's significant that in the book of Judges, Jephthah here calls the Lord Yahweh, the judge, and asks him to decide on the battlefield who is right and who is wrong. It's a great act of faith on the part of Jephthah, isn't it? To put his trust in God to decide for him who is going to come away with the land. Now that's probably why in the New Testament the writer of Hebrews commends Jephthah. Even with all his flaws, the writer of the Hebrews commends Jephthah for his faith. You might remember that in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, which is that wonderful chapter where he's given uh, a list of Old Testament heroes of the faith, that the Jephthah is mentioned as the one who had faith. This is the high point of the person of Jephthah. But if we read on, uh, you can see that diplomacy breaks down and uh, uh, and the Israelite army fell towards war with the people of Ammon. But it's at this point that we see Jephthah trying to bargain again. However, this time, Jephthah doesn't try to bargain with people. Notice that he tries to bargain with God. Now, you can see it there in verse 30, don't you? Have a look with me at verse 30. It says there, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a good offer. Of course, you know the story. The Lord gives Jephthah and his men a great victory on the battlefield. He returns home. And who should be the first one who comes out of that door to greet him? That's his daughter. His precious daughter. An only child. He comes out celebrating with tambourine and dancing at the side of her father, returning safely from war. It's striking 
even as he feels the distress of what is about to transpire in his battle, just that he only think of himself and blame his daughter for his predicament. And look at verse 35. In verse 35, he tears his clothes and he says to his daughter, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. It's extraordinary, isn't it? He can't at this stage think about what this means for his daughter, but all he can think about was how she is at fault for bringing him great distress. What is remarkable is that the daughter understands the gravity of the situation and wants her father to fulfill the vow. And so he gives her two months to believe with her friends for the life that she could have had. And then we are told in verse 39 that he did fill her according to his vow. In other words, he does the unspeakable deed of offering up his own child. The great tragedy of this, of course, is that there was no need for Jephthah to make his vow to bargain with God in this way. If you have a look at verse 29, you can see there that the Spirit of God had already fallen on Jephthah. And in the book of Judges, when the Spirit of God falls upon a judge, then it's game over for the enemies. Further, we know that God in the Old Testament abhors human sacrifice and child sacrifice in particular. And there were provisions in the law for not following through with foolish vows like this. And so the bargain that Jephthah strikes with God is completely unnecessary. Why would Jephthah make such a bargain with God? Why would he open his mouth and do his horrible deeds and make such a horrible promise to God? Well, I think it's because even though in public he professes his faith in God, well, in private he begins to doubt whether God will actually So, striking this kind of bargain is just his way of trying to manipulate God into giving him what he wants. It's a form of bribery, isn't it? It's a, it's a way of trying to control God. God, if you give me this, then I will give you something that is precious to me. And you can't back out of that. Now, some of you might know the story of Frank Sinatra from his death. I did it my way. Well, his way involved womanizing, drunkenness, and thuggery, having religious links to organized crime. But the story goes that on his deathbed, he organized for a pope to come and see him. And he asked the pope to hear his confession. And he offered him $150,000, which was good money in those days, for the Pope to hear his confession and absolve him from all his sins. 
In other words, knowing that he would soon meet God, he begins to bargain for money. Now, you and I, I'm sure, are not as crass as Sinatra. But I wonder whether we can also try to bargain for God at times. Just like Jephthah, we may have people who publicly profess faith in God and in his goodness. And yet, in our quiet moments, we can begin to doubt him and start to bargain with God in the open. Somehow, controlling, manipulating is what we want. Is that wrong? God, please deal with my awful diseases. And if you do that, then I will serve you. God, please find me a life partner, and I promise to lift my spirit in heaven. Well, God, please give me a child, and I promise to repent of the sin that I keep on forming. And yet, my friend, that sounds familiar to you. But my brother and sister, I'm going to say to you that if you and I are Christian, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a right to You know, I think just that he begins to bargain with God. Now, primarily because he hasn't heard a word from God. I don't know what he's noticed, but all through chapter 11, God is strange and silent. He hasn't actually promised him salvation. And so he begins to doubt. Because we are people who have heard a word from God. In the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, God says to us, I love you. And I have given you my spirit. And I promise to be good to you and to give you the victory over your greatest enemies of sin and death. I might not give you everything that you ask for. But know that I have given you the victory and I have given you my spirit. That's the promise we have from God. That's the word we have from God, isn't it? And so you do not need to bargain with God. In fact, to bargain with God is the opposite of faith. For bargaining with God is about offering something to God in return for His favor. That's a very transactional view of God, isn't it? But that's a very pagan way of looking at God. In fact, I think uh, in our passage, the reason why Jephthah follows through and puts his only daughter to death is it's because what is because that's what the pagans did. You see, the pagans frequently sacrificed their children to the gods in the hope that the gods would give them faith. Jephthah was somebody who was so influenced by the gods of the nations that he started to conceive of Yahweh, the true and living God, just like the pagan gods. But that's not faith. Faith is simply saying to God, I have nothing to offer you. What is it that I can give you that you don't already have, God? But all I 
This morning, we see the consequences of Jephthah's leadership of Israel. Yes, he has delivered uh, the people of Israel from the hands of the Ammonites, but you can see what follows. And in the end, Jephthah's brand of leadership plunges the people of Israel into civil war. Now, uh, we won't have time to look at all the details here, but you can see generally what's going on now. In verse 12 of Jephthah, uh, well, the people of Ephraim, who are uh, you know, one of the other tribes of Israel, come to Jephthah furious because they haven't been uh, included in this, in this war against the, the Ammonites. It seems that the people of Ephraim are full of their self-importance. And if you remember, they did a similar thing in the time of Gideon by complaining that they weren't all into, into the battle. But whereas, whereas Gideon was able to appease their anger, Jephthah resorts to violence because, well, the, the, the Ephraimites were taunting him by calling them names, by calling them fugitives of Gideon, by the fugitives of Ephraim. Now you might notice that right at the end, the way Jephthah identifies the few remaining men of Ephraim that he hasn't already slaughtered. Is by asking him to say the word shibboleth. Uh, it's a bit like, um, uh, you know, when uh, I have friends from New Zealand, I um, ask them to say fish and chips. And uh, if they say fish and chips, um, then you know that uh, they're not from around here. It's a similar kind of uh, idea, isn't it? And so when the Ephraimites can't pronounce the word shibboleth properly, Possessions of faith is a deeply, deeply flawed leader. We've seen that he's a person who uses his words to serve himself. He bargains with people in order to achieve attention over the people of Gideon. He bargains with God to try and secure his own advantage. In the end, he uses his power. Not to unite the people of Israel, but to selfishly crush those who oppose him, so that Israel is sent into division and civil war and tribalism. We know something of what it is like to be led by self-centered leaders, just like Jesus. Wives often demand husbands. They think only of themselves rather than sacrificially looking at them. Churches, the modern leaders who are interested only in prestige, will have been given of themselves to teach and to have the benefit of the people that they serve. Countless people in this world suffer under leaders who are narcissists and can only think of themselves and of them. 
country. And you experience that. So what God teaches us in this part of His world is that even though He has provided a Savior in the future, ultimately, we need a better Savior. Yes, God was pleased to use even someone like Jephthah to save His people. But in the end, Jephthah's selfish leadership leads not to unity, but to division, not to peace, but to war, not to joy, but to misery. Among the people of God. And yet, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a different leader We have a leader who has come into this world not to use his power for his own selfish ends, but we have one who came into this world to serve, to serve you, to serve me, and to give his life. We do not have a leader who is trying to bargain with God, trying to get his own way. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have one who cried, Not my will, but yours be done. Even as he headed to the cross to give his life for us, to save us from our sins, and to unite us as the people of God. And so, my brothers and sisters, look to him. Know that in him you have a Savior who loves you and who cares for you and has promised to restore you. Model your life on him so that you can be husbands, you can be church leaders, you can be citizens who look not only to your own wishes, selfish and make life miserable for us. Especially for sending to us a Savior who has defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death and the devil at the cross and promised good to us. So, Father, we pray that you will deepen our faith in our Savior this morning. And we pray especially for those of us who are going through difficult circumstances and feeling anxious and insecure for various reasons. That you will help us to trust in your word, in your promises, even if your ways are different to the ways that we ask and hope for. Help us not to bargain with you, but to trust you and to 